James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Have you ever had a problem or an issue or uh, some situation and the answer was staring you in the face and it maybe took a while to, to realize that? I think the, the classic example is, you know, somebody looking for their glasses and they're on their forehead the whole time. Um, the one time I thought I lost my wedding ring, Allison already knows this story, so I won't get in any more trouble, but one time I almost lost my wedding ring and it was gone for a couple of months. And I thought I'd looked everywhere for it. And so I just kind of thought it, it's gone. And one day I walked into my little office at the seminary and it was sitting right on my desk. And I had gone into that desk day all the time and, and I didn't see it there. And I, I thought there's no way I missed it. And I hadn't really missed it. It had apparently I took it off and put it on the desk and somehow knocked it off and it had rolled up underneath the desk. And the custodian saw something shiny under my desk while they were vacuuming. I don't know why it took months to vacuum into my office. I didn't ask that. But I was just glad that they saw the ring in a, you know, not a fairly obvious place, but it was right there the whole time. And so I was glad. I was thankful for that. You know, the answer to my problem was right there. And we're going to see that this morning in James. Last week, James taught us the evil of showing partiality and showing favoritism. And that happens when we judge others based off outward things. And it's evil because it's incompatible with our faith. It's evil because it's inconsistent with the gospel of salvation, and it's not how God works. It is a wicked thing. And if this describes us, then it's a problem. It's a problem that needs to be fixed, but James hasn't yet told us the solution. But we'll see that this morning. The solution to favoritism and partiality is right in front of us. And so this morning, as we concentrate on verse 8 through 13, James is going to give us another reason why it's so wicked, but he's going to give us the solution. That's one of the best things about the Bible is that it's the thermometer and the Tylenol. It might tell you there's a problem, but it doesn't just leave you hanging. It tells you what you need to do in order to fix it. It gives you the remedy or the solution. So we'll see this morning, what do we need to do in order to change? What is the remedy or the solution for favoritism? So let's read in James chapter 2. I want to read from verse 1 through verse 13 uh, to remind us of what James has brought up. But then we'll concentrate starting in verse 8. Verse 1, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing or the goodly clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in, your, uh, in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom with which he promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect of, to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, 
he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. One reason why judging based on outward things and showing favoritism and partiality is such an egregious sin is because it violates the most important command in Scripture, and that is to love. And that's what James brings up in verse 8 there. The importance of love cannot be overstated. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? Paul taught that if you were this spiritual giant who could prophesy, who had the ability to understand everything, who had faith to move mountains, but you didn't have love, Paul says you're nothing. He said that if you give everything that you have away, including your body, but you don't do it out of love, you've gained nothing. When a man asked Jesus one day what the greatest commandment was, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And Jesus said, And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It's all based on love. That's why Paul said in Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The command to love is so important that in verse 8, James calls it the royal law, which I just think means to, uh, refers to the fact that it's, it's the king of laws, so to speak. The law of love is sovereign over all others. Jesus just said that everything depends on love. Everything hangs on love. And so James says in verse 8, if you fulfill that law, you're doing well. But there's a small word that for some reason the King James, for whatever reason, the King James translators did not bring it across in English. But some of you have a ESV or New American Standard or some other modern translation see it. And it's this word really. Or maybe it's the word however. If you have that in your translation, it, it's there in the original Greek. And again, for whatever reason, the King James didn't bring it across. So the ESV translates verse 8 this way. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. So there's two, two suggestions about this, two, two ways this verse may be viewed. And one suggestion is that James just kind of hammered this group of people for partiality and favoritism. But he didn't want those to think, uh, those people who actually might be fulfilling the royal law, uh, to feel like they did something wrong. Kind of like a teacher scolding the class for talking, but, you know, there's a group of students who weren't talking. It's kind of like, well, I know everybody wasn't talking, but I'm going to get on to the whole class anyway. Well, if you weren't talking, don't worry about it. 
maybe a little bit of something like that, that if you really are fulfilling this, then keep your conscience clear. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing right. You're not someone judging based off evil thoughts. So I'm not talking about you don't change anything. And that's a possibility. I kind of lean towards the second possibility where James is possibly anticipating a rebuttal or anticipating an excuse from the people uh, in the way that they treated these two visitors in the scenario he just presented. Because they treated the rich man great. And so can you see somebody saying, James, we were just showing the rich man love. What's wrong with that? Doesn't that fulfill the royal law? Doesn't that fulfill love? Aren't we to love our neighbor? We're just loving this man. And so James says, look, if that's what you're really doing, then you're doing well. Then you're doing right. But verse 9 condemns them if that's not really the case. Your treatment of the rich man looked good, but what about your treatment of the poor man? And so he says in verse 9, but if you have respect to persons, you commit sin. The idea here of the having respect to persons is the same sin he mentioned in verse 1 of the chapter. It means to show partiality, to show favoritism. If you were here last week, you remember it's that word where you put your hand under somebody's chin and you lift up their face to see who you're judging before you actually make the judgment. That's the illustration of this word. And so your judgment is then based off of who they are. Maybe you knew that person. Maybe that person's rich and... Uh, or maybe you don't like that person and your judgment's going to be too harsh or whatever it is. But you, you don't judge based off the facts, based off truth, based off righteousness. You based off, off of who they are instead of right judgment. And so in the scenario of the two visitors, nobody could seriously claim that they were loving the rich man and fulfilling the law of love because their actions towards the poor man proved otherwise. They were not loving their neighbor because they disgraced the poor man. So even if we grant them that, that, it, that they loved the rich man, which they really weren't, but even if we give them that, they still weren't fulfilling the law because they didn't love the poor man also. Listen, this is so important. We are not given the luxury of choosing who our neighbor is. God does not allow us the option to pick and choose who we will love. Thank goodness that God didn't do that. Jesus told us to, to love our enemies and pray for the people who persecute us. And so if we think that we can fulfill the law of love by showing love only to a particular group or particular people, we're flat out wrong. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Anytime we try to protect ourselves or justify ourselves by redefining the word neighbor... We're doing the same thing that a man did that led Jesus to tell the very famous parable of the Good Samaritan. Look at Luke chapter 10. We'll start with verse 25. 
This man's going to ask Jesus a question, but we've got to understand right off the bat, he has no real interest in Jesus' answer. We're going to read that he asked this question simply to test Jesus, simply to tempt him. He doesn't care what Jesus is going to answer. He's just trying to trick Jesus. But then when Jesus answered, we'll see that the man tried to justify his own actions and make himself feel better. Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. That's all you got to do. Just love perfectly all the time. Verse 29, but he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from, Jer uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, and Jews hated Samaritans, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him into an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave, to, uh, gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. When Jesus answered this man's question, the man tried to justify himself. He tried to make himself feel better. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Okay, let's define that term. I need a checklist of the people that I need to love in order to fulfill this. But the parable that Jesus gave completely reversed the man's question. The command to love your neighbor is less about your neighbor and more about you. Jesus did not limit or define the word neighbor like this man wanted him to do. But instead, Jesus proved that you need to be the neighbor to others. He basically said, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, who is my neighbor, but who will I be a neighbor to? Godly love is not about limiting the scope of your love or redefining the term neighbor so that you justify yourself or make yourself feel more comfortable. It's about showing God's love to all. Jesus showed that in a mighty way in this parable by making a sorry Samaritan the hero when the great religious priest and Levite just passed by. 
we're not given the luxury of picking and choosing. One author says, no one is outside the boundary of love. And he says, not even the poor and unlovely, indeed especially not them. And so back to James's initial scenario that he brought up with the rich man and the poor man had nothing to do with love. Sure, they showed respect and honor to the rich man, but the disrespect they showed to the poor proved that they were not actually fulfilling the law of love. But they were wickedly acting out of favoritism and partiality. And so James says, if that's what you're really doing, then you commit sin. There's a big contrast there, right? If you're really loving, then you're doing well. But if you're really showing favoritism, that's sinful. And there's no argument. There's no redefining the terms. There's no saying, well, hang on, who's really my neighbor? There's no defense. You have no case, no leg to stand on, because James says at the end of verse 9, you are convinced of the law as a transgressor. That word convinced there has the idea of being exposed or being convicted. It even gives the idea that there's adequate proof uh, of the wrongdoing. There's evidence of the wrongdoing which leads to shame and disgrace. You don't have a case. It's sinful, period. You can't talk your way out of it. You're caught red-handed. And there's obvious guilt and conviction that lead to shame. I want you to think about this. The poor person in the scenario is not the only person who is shamed. The believers who showed partiality also end up being shamed and disgraced because the law convicts them and exposes them of their sin. Kind of came back on them. If you refuse to love someone else and instead uh, shame them because of your favoritism and partiality, then you have shamed yourself as the law that you've broken has exposed you and convicted you. There's no argument. You're a transgressor and a lawbreaker, and you can't say, well, you know, favoritism, partiality, is that really that big of a deal? It's a huge problem because it means you're violating love. And you might say, well, but I'm not really a lawbreaker. I'm not really a transgressor. I'm pretty good at everything else. Uh, Maybe I just struggle with that one. What does James say in verse 10 and 11, though? For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. James says, look, if you keep the whole law, but you offend or you stumble or you fail in just one point, then you're guilty of all of it. The only thing I don't do is that I don't love the way I should. Then you're guilty. You're a lawbreaker. One, one author said, to break out one corner of a window pane is to become guilty of breaking the whole window. You're a window breaker. If you break one law, you're a lawbreaker. It almost sounds silly, but what do you call someone who's in jail for multiple murders? Prisoner. Well, what do you call somebody who's in jail for jaywalking? Prisoner. Hey, you're a lawbreaker. 
If you break one law, that's what you are. And so you're guilty of all of it. And this shows us the unity of God's law. The unity of it all. And this was something that the ancient Jewish rabbis actually taught. One rabbi agreed with James. One rabbi said, if he do all but omit one, he's guilty for all. But most of the ancient rabbis reversed that idea. And this is really, this is really interesting. Most ancient Jewish rabbis taught that keeping one law meant that you obeyed the whole law. James presents it quite the reverse. But most of these ancient rabbis said, look, as long as you keep one, you're good. And guess which law they really honed in on, which one they really tried to make sure they kept? Keeping the Sabbath. If they kept the Sabbath, they felt like they were good. One, one rabbi said, the Sabbath weighs against all the precepts. If they keep it, they were reckoned as having done all. Doesn't that make some of the gospel stories come alive about why the Pharisees were so concerned about people keeping the Sabbath? Really more concerned with people keeping their Sabbath regulations, but they put such an emphasis on keeping the Sabbath because they felt like, well, as long as we keep the Sabbath, we're keeping all of God's law. Look, they were right that there's some unity in God's law, but they had it completely backwards. The unity is, is not that if you keep one law, you're holy, but if you break one, you're a lawbreaker. And that's what James is telling these readers, and he's telling us that too. And so, understanding the unity of the law of God, it also reinforces the point about not being able to pick and choose. God's Word's not a buffet. Just like we can't pick who, in, uh, who we love, we should love everyone. We don't, we don't have the luxury to pick and choose what commands in Scripture we like and don't like and which ones we want to obey and which ones we don't want to obey. If you fail in one point, you're a failure. Every command, every point, every precept, every obligation is unified and James gives us the reason in verse 11. Why is there such a harmony here? Why such a unity? It's because they all come from the same lawgiver. The same one who said don't commit adultery also said do not kill. You don't get bonus points for not committing adultery and then turning around and being a murderer. Well, I didn't commit adultery, did I? No, but you're still a lawbreaker. You still broke God's law. You're guilty. You're a transgressor. All I, the only thing I lack is love. Even though James brings up two of the Ten Commandments here, he, he does it by way of illustration. He's not concerned with, with his readers or us keeping the Old Testament law in the sense of all its rituals and all its ceremonies and things like that. He's concerned with us keeping the royal law of love. And now that encompasses all of the ethical and moral and all of those principles like adultery and murder and all of those things. He wants us to realize how sinful and damaging it is if we don't live lives that are based off of love. And that's what he appeals then to, to us in 12 and 13 is to live our lives consistent with love, knowing that we will be judged by that. Look at 12 and 13 again. 
He says, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. This so speak ye and so do is one of, one of James's many commands. It's not a suggestion. It's a continual command. Realizing the importance of love, realizing the unity of God's law, realizing the evil of, of partiality, all of these things, we need to then live our lives, speech and actions, completely and habitually transformed because we know we'll be judged. It's not a judgment for salvation. James writing to save people already. But it's a judgment for rewards. It's a judgment based on how you served God. And you say, well, what will that, what will that judgment be based on? How will my character and conduct be assessed? What? It's not going to be a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's not going to be some legalistic, ritualistic, ceremonial type thing. James says, speak and live like you'll be judged by the law of liberty. James used this same phrase, law of liberty, back in chapter 1 and verse 25. And you may remember that it almost seems backwards to refer to a law as something that gives freedom. A law being something that gives liberty. Because we typically think that laws are restrictive. Laws are confining. Laws... Uh, laws, you know, they, they bind us and things like that. That's not the case with God's law. When a person restricts their life to the boundaries of the Word of God, then he or she is freer than ever before. If you've trusted Christ, then you've been set free. And so here's the important question. How are you using your God-given freedom? How are you using your God-given freedom? Are you serving God and serving others out of love? Or are you selfishly, uh, living selfishly and only concerned and only loving certain people? Listen, having freedom in Christ and having that liberty is wonderful and freeing, but it also comes with a great responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. You've been freed to serve God out of love instead of out of fear. So think about it this way. If God judged the Israelites in the Old Testament the way He did when they were under the Mosaic Law then how will He judge us since we're under a law that gives freedom? We need to realize that, and so we need to let that motivate us in our service to God. And we saw at the end of chapter 1 what pleases God, what pure religion is. It involves personal holiness, keeping oneself unspotted from the world, but He also mentioned the idea of helping others visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. God is pleased when you show love and mercy to others. And if you don't show that to others, then don't expect God to show that to you on the day of judgment. 
Now, we don't like to think like that. But James is pretty blunt. If you don't show mercy to others, then don't expect God to show mercy to you. I love how one commentator described this. He said, such refusal to practice mercy will be like a boomerang in the day of judgment. Boomerangs come back to you. I think this is very similar to what Jesus said about forgiveness. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you forgive others their trespasses, what will happen? Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But he said, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. If you desire some mercy from God one day, then you need to show his mercy to others right now. Thankfully, that is true then. The reverse is true, which James mentions at the end of verse 13, that mercy rejoices against judgment. Or you, you have a translation that says mercy triumphs over judgment. The idea of this phrase is that mercy is able to boast about its triumphant victory. Mercy wins out, and it can brag about it. If you display true love and mercy towards all others in your life, then you can expect God's mercy when you stand before him in judgment. And again, we're not talking about judgment for salvation. I'll say that again. That's settled when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But we're talking here about the judgment seat of Christ in which believers are judged based on their works and their service for God. You were given freedom. You were shown the amazing love of God in your life. How did you use that? That's convicting. If you loved others and you showed them mercy, then you can stand confidently before your Creator knowing that you will receive His mercy as well, which is something else Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful. Why? For they shall obtain mercy. So let's tie all of this together. In the scenario of the two visitors, the actions of the assembly were evil. They judged based on outward appearances, which led to partiality and favoritism. The rich was shown respect while the poor was shamed. And that's evil because it's inconsistent with our faith. It's inconsistent with the gospel. It's inconsistent with how God works. And it means you're not fulfilling the royal law of love. And that's a huge problem. So what's the solution? What's the remedy? It's right there in front of us. Like the glasses on your forehead. The solution is love. If you truly love others, partiality and favoritism cannot exist. Love is the death of favoritism. But if we pick and choose who we love, then favoritism is alive and flourishing. If partiality is the poison, love is the antidote. If it's the disease, love is the cure. If we will truly follow the law of love, 
then we will not judge based on outward things and show partiality and favoritism because of our own evil thoughts. You say, but that means you've got to love everyone. You mean just like God did? Exactly. We better be thankful that our God does not love the way we so often love. That he picked and chose favorites. Jesus Christ died for everybody. You know, some people don't believe that, and they're flat out wrong. Jesus Christ died for everyone. Because God loves everyone. And so let's ask God to help our faith grow and mature and develop, which is what James began this whole letter with, so that we begin to love others, not just some others, but all others with the very love God has poured into our hearts when we trusted Christ. Because that's what God did for us. And that's what he expects from us. If you're here and you've never known the wonderful love and mercy of God in your life, it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, what other people think about you, what their judgments of you happen to be. God loves you and cares about you, and Jesus gave his life for you. If you'll repent and trust him, he will show you mercy forgiveness. He will pour his love into your heart no matter who you are. And then you're freed up to live a life showing that same love to everyone else. Would you stand? Let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we thank you so much for your word. This is yet again another portion of your word that's not necessarily difficult to understand, but we need help implementing it in our lives, Lord. We know that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And this is a command, Lord, that we cannot keep without your help and without your spirit. Lord, help us to love others the way you have loved us. Change us, Lord. Help us again not to be comfortable where we are, but to uh, spur us on to further maturity. Uh, to be a more complete Christian for you, Lord, so that others may see your love and your mercy in our lives. Father, forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.